Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1992. And look, up in the sky, it's a pig. It's a plane. Oh, actually, it's, it's a pig in a plane. The movie, Boca Rosso. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the best movies ever made. And when we do, we will fire them off into space to either kill aliens or enlighten them to what Amy and I believe are the classics, the true classics. And you know, Amy, throughout the show, we have not spent that much time in animation. And this month we've been delving deep into animation, different types of animation. How are you enjoying your animation? I am enjoying it. We've been taking some unexpected turns, I would say. At first I was like, what are we going to do for animation? Are we just going to do Fantasia? Because it was kicked off the original AFI list. What I mean, the world of animation is so big. And I feel like we've been picking some unusual films within it. And I have been enjoying this strange and twisty ride. Yeah, I mean, today's film is uh, Porco Rosso, which is uh, our first Miyazaki film. And I'll just talk about how we came to this conclusion to pick this film. When we... You and I argued for like hours and hours and hours over weeks. (laughs) Well, yeah, we were getting into it, but we wanted to make sure that we represented... Uh, a choice that was not overdone. And when we let the uh, the listeners kind of vote, one of the things that kept on coming up was you can't do Spirited Away and you can't do Totoro because they've been done, talked about to death. Not that they aren't great, but we would love to hear a different discussion. And I think that really resonated with both of us. Like the idea like, yes, I know we've talked about The Godfather in the show and Star Wars in the show. Those are movies that are overdone as well. But for this month, I thought it was fun to maybe veer off the beaten path a little bit. And the the clear winner, which is a movie that I never heard of, this uh, Porco Rosso, uh, was right there waiting for us. So that's how we picked it. Um, But I was surprised because I thought, oh, maybe it would be Ponyo. Maybe it would be like other movies that I'd heard of. But this seems to have a, a lot of heat behind it. And I know that you have a very interesting story about Porco. Oh, Porco Rosso. Is a, is a movie that I think I never quite believed was a movie uh, <laughs> until we just watched it. Because what happened is when I was a little kid, I was really into everything Japanese. And my dad 
bought me a Christmas present. He went into a store and he was like, my daughter likes Japanese things. What do I get at the mall? And they gave him a DVD of Porco Rosso, except they explained it to him as like, it's sort of like a computer game. I don't know. Because they, they gave it to him at a time when DVDs were not common and we didn't right. own a DVD player and it was just a... Whoa, it, I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah. That's even crazy. Okay. I didn't know what a DVD was and neither did my dad. And it was explained really strangely. Um, and so he came home and uh, gave it to me for Christmas and like, you know, it was just this like box that had a pig on the cover of it and the pig looked like it was flying. And my dad said it was a computer game and I didn't know how to play it and I was terrified I was going to break it. So I just left it in the wrapping, not knowing what this thing was. It became this like entertainment totem of my life of like this, this box that was still in the plastic wrap that I carried around because I became terrified that if I opened it, I would destroy it somehow. And I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and then even after like I learned what a DVD player was, I, I, I didn't have the courage to unwrap it and figure out whether or not this was a DVD I don't know why it became wow. this like thing that I will never unwrap and could never unwrap because I just was terrified. It's like having like the dancing frog in the box and like, what if it's not a DVD? What if it is a video game? This I know this is sounding psychotic, but well, basically I carried this like shrink wrapped Porco Rosso DVD around for like 15 years. And I never love that unwrapped it came it. with you. It came with you wherever you went. Yeah. It seemed like so valuable that I didn't ever want to find out what it was. And so I finally like sold it when it was still in shrink wrap because I was really, really poor. And so I sold it to um, the uh, Amoeba Records here in Hollywood because I didn't know what else to do with it. And I knew in my soul that I would never find out what was inside this box. So that is what happened. And, and then, yeah. This is it. We got here. <laughs> By the way, as I'm hearing that story, I'm realizing that your dad probably bought like a Region 2 DVD. Like, because I imagine if it's from Japan, maybe they didn't. It, or who knows? I mean, yeah, I am right. Cause in research, yeah. this, I realized that like the DVD release here wasn't until like way after my dad gave me this. So it was probably something we couldn't even play here anyways. And like, maybe that would explain the fraught manner in which it was explained to my dad and like the tension that he imbued in this box when wow. he gave it to me. And this... also now that I think about it, what a dick move to sell my dad something that we clearly couldn't play. Right. But, <laughs> I mean, yeah, really, so there's just, who, it's been strange. I've had this weird relationship with this movie in my head, like still not believing it was a movie till I watched it and like, and like feeling guilt that I never watched it before and wondering what would happen if I had discovered Miyazaki when I was in high school instead of wow. like much later. Well, this is fascinating. And I think there's only one thing we can do, which is unspool it. The year is 1992. The nicotine patch hits the market. Euro Disney in France opens. Bill Clinton's elected president. Minnesota's Mall of America is constructed, spanning 78 acres. DNA fingerprinting is invented. And the hot films include films that we've done here on the show. A League of Their Own, Unforgiven, Basic Instinct, which we've not done, and today's film, Porco Rosso. Uh, Amy, tell us who's in it, what's it about, and more importantly, 92, that's a banger year. What was on the radio? <laughs> Porco Rosso. It is written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, Miyazaki is, of course, the great Japanese animator who co-founded Studio Ghibli and made major films there. Totoro, Spirit Away, Princess Mononoke, Ponyo, Kiki's Delivery Service, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, most of his big films that have hit here are about like young girls in fantastical situations. But Porco Rosso is the closest film that Miyazaki ever made to his own self-portrait. 
like true story. When Miyazaki does like little doodles of himself, he draws himself as a pig. And also Porcoroso is the only film that Miyazaki has openly said that he wants to someday make a sequel to, which may or may not happen depending on like how many more times he wants to retire. He likes to retire and then come back out again. Uh, Porcoroso is set in the 19- Tom Brady of the animation world. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that phrase has ever been used for him before, but he should coin it. <laughs> <laughs> that That's our new shirt. We have not made a new shirt in a while. <laughs> Miyazaki is the Tom Brady of the animation world. Are we going to draw him as a it really works. pig? How is this going to work? <laughs> pig skin, pig man, oh I like God, it. Oh my God, pig skin, pig man, you're right. Pig, pig skin, pig man, pygmalion. Okay. You have Tom Brady throwing a football that looks like Miyazaki as a pig. This is a million dollar idea. The man loves flying. He's <laughs> there flying it is. in the air. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Porco Rosso is set in 1929. Uh, it's set kind of in and above the Adriatic Sea. That's like the sea between Italy and what is now Croatia during the gap between World War One and World War Two. Uh, Porco, born Marco is a 30-something seaplane pilot who used to fight in the Italian army, and the war turned him into a pig, both figuratively, as he is a cynical, sexist, heavy-drinking, emotionally wounded man who no longer believes in anything, including himself, and also, literally, he is a pig. He walks around, he's a pig, he has a snout, and everybody else in the movie is human. Yet the movie is about how through the eyes of the people who care about him, especially two women, Gina, his childhood friend who runs this very cool nightclub that I would love to go to, and Fio, a teen girl who also happens to be a brilliant engineer. Through them, we see glimpses of the man that Porco could still be. Take a listen. Porco Rosso, Miyazaki's soaring action adventure of a valiant pilot. Here we go. It is Porco. Transformed by a mysterious spell. I only look out for myself. And his heroic battles to rid the skies of notorious pirates. Slice of the bacon! Full of courage and humor. I'll tell everyone you're chicken! Chicken, pig, what's the difference? <laughs> Take flight with the incredible Porco Rosso. Porco Rosso was released in 1992 as a special in-flight movie for Japan Air. And then later it was released in theaters and much later it was released here. Uh, It was a huge success in Japan. Like at the box office, it beat not just Hook, but Beauty and the Beast. It was the number one movie that year. It set a domestic record that didn't get broken for a very long time, I think until Titanic. Uh, Porco Rosso made it to the United States on December 16th, 1994, where very few people saw it at the time. But over the decades, its reputation has grown and grown and grown and grown. Uh, what were people busy doing instead of seeing Porco Rosso on December 16th, 1994? Well, according to the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend, they were rocking out to a song that, yes, Paul, still totally crushes. Any Kamose, Here Comes the Hot Summer. No, no, we don't die. Yes, we multiply. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah, I will say they do have one thing in common. Inikomose, Here Comes the Hot Stepper, and, and Porco Rosso. I will say this. They are both works of art that love idioms. You know, if Porco Rosso is all about, like, when pigs fly, Inikomose, in that clip we just hear, he's just waiting to hear that fat lady sing. 
That's a stretch. I'll take. It. <laughs> uh, you know, look. Uh, you know what? Uh, look. Uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to buy it because you you sold it with such conviction. Honestly, that's that's all I can ask for here. Um, this is a really interesting movie um, in the sense that I didn't know it existed, and it feels so drastically different than all of his other films. You talked about this uh, in the beginning that you know he normally has female protagonists, but this movie in a way, is like an adult film marketed towards kids. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Like, like Miyazaki is a guy who has really strong opinions on what kind of movies kids should watch or what's mm-hmm. good for kids. Well, this is perfect Mi- for a fodder for <laughs> us as we've gotten into this uh, many uh, a time. Well, then maybe we should trust him in yeah. what he says. You know, because his view on kids' films, having made some of the most massive kids films. I don't know if you ever went to the Miyazaki uh, museum exhibit that we have here at the Academy Museum right now. I heard it's it's amazing. It's very cool. Kids running under all of his trees and playing around. Um, But he said like the main difference between like him and John Lasseter, you know, who he was comparing himself Mm -hmm. to at the time is that John Lasseter wants to guide children. He wants to get lost with children. You know, he says that with children, you really do have to aim for their heads Um, You should not decide for a kid what is too much for them to handle, that children are really wise. And he really feels like with a kid movie, it's okay to take on serious topics, but what you really specifically have to do that he tries not to do is to simplify something serious, to sentimentalize something serious, or he never, ever tries to solve something serious and make it be like, it's going to be okay. Here's how it gets resolved. So he's like, you can show kids things like, you know, the environment, we have to take care of the environment, but he's not going to do it in easy ways. We're like, here's Mr. Mean tree guy, you know, and da da da, we saved the planet. Or here in this movie, he talks about war and he talks about fascism, but he doesn't make it, you know, easy. He just sort of is presenting how these things exist and showing you characters tangling with it and kind of treating kids like adults who can figure out what they think. I totally agree with that. Uh, the idea that, you know, an adult movie for kids can work on two levels because the story is always going to be fulfilling. Like they understand the beginning, middle and end. They may not see all the nuance in it, but they can at least go along for the journey. And as you get older, you can see the bigger story, like the more adult themes. And I think that's a really tricky thing to figure out how to do, how to keep something interesting for kids, but also, you know, as rich and full for adults. That makes for a great what I've been talking about, family movie, where you can go there and leave with two totally different experiences, but come out loving it just the same. No, that's true. Because like the setting of this movie, you know, between wars, you know, in a movie where like you're watching and knowing that like a new war is going to happen. What I respect about his approach is like Miyazaki doesn't condescend to anybody in the audience and say like, this pig can save war or prevent war. But he also doesn't, doesn't sugarcoat things. I feel like this is a movie that doesn't Mm. lie to you, right? Because to take one character as an example, like you're aware that war is coming. You're seeing more fascists on the streets in Italy. You know, there's lots to talk about, you know, later on in this episode about like Porco himself and how he feels about the government. But you have like a girl in the movie, you know, the girl Fio, who's like an Italian and a great airplane designer. And we know at the end of the movie through her epilogue, she's going to keep making airplanes and she's going to keep making them in Italy which means she's probably making military planes for like the Italian government during World War II. And that's pretty dark. 
And he doesn't like lie about it, but he doesn't really talk about it either. He just presents it as though it is a thing that will that will happen. Wow, that's actually a lot darker than than I even realized. I didn't think it all the way through, but right? you're right. It's kind of like people you love can also do things you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. I'm a yeah. big believer in that, that you don't mm-hmm. have to agree with a person's perspective on everything to be their friend, to be in relation with them. It helps. But I do think it's important to embrace differences. And talking about differences, I mean, our lead character here is a pig. And not a pig for comedic sake, right? It's not like, oh, isn't this cute? He is someone who has been affected by something. I I think this character being a pig is a physical representation of guilt and loss, right? And, And in a way, I was thinking about it, and tell me if I'm totally off base, but the idea that he feels like a pig because he survived this horrible battle where his friends died and he kind of is greedily eating more life. So it's sort of like he feels like a, a pig, like, a, you know, that he's getting to gorge himself on on living or something in there. Am I... Does that connect to you at all, or do you think? I mean, oh, I'm trying to understand why. Gorging it, but I think you're. I like that gorging image because I mean that's the first thing we see of him. He's like a guy who has carved for himself this little nook of life where it's him, a bottle of wine. He's smoking. He's reading magazines. And he's positioned like a pig. He wants to be bothered. Like he's positioned like a pig on a beach, belly up. In the he's not in the sand, but he's in a chair in the sand, like the way that you would see a pig in a, a sty, right? Like they're just, they love the sun there. And obviously there are elements here. Like, is he acting like a pig or is he acting like a human? I don't know. But there is that idea that he is living that life and has no true, like he doesn't seem like he has any passion. He's great at flying and he has a passion for putting himself into dangerous situations to help yeah. save others. But it, that seems like his only true passion. Yeah. And even the helping is kind of like, eh, okay, because I can. You know, not right. like I must. It's not like I have to save the day. It's like, all right. Yeah. Mr. Rosso, we've got a job for you. The Mama Ayuto gang is on the move. The Mama Ayuto gang? I don't know. Kind of busy. We need you to protect one of our ships that's carrying a fortune in gold. Is that all? Well, uh, there's a group of schoolgirls on board, too. That is going to cost you. I mean, that idea of feeling greedy about living. I like that. That's interesting because one of the things about this movie is they never tell you why he's a pig. Right. You know, there's somebody mentions briefly that it was a curse, but they don't say who put the curse and blah, blah, blah. I feel like you kind of understand that maybe he put the curse on himself. I mean, one of the theories that, you know, is actually just said in the film's promotional booklet, which is not on screen, but they say in the booklet that he turned himself into a pig because he wanted to get out of being in the army. Which to me, mm. it, it sounds almost like the hijinks we would have seen in MASH or something like right, that. Right, right. And that would explain one of the interesting things about him, which is he is a pig. He seems aware that he's a pig, not super stoked on it, but he also doesn't seem tormented. 
You know, this isn't like well, but Morbius or something like, oh no, if only I weren't a pig or he's not you even see, like. He, you see that torment when he's crossed out his face. Well, you see, the, but he crosses out being a human. Like he's like, he's, or what I guess I'm trying to say is like, he's not trying to, there is no plot line in here of how can I not be a pig? Right. I see what you're saying. Okay. Right. So I think it pains him to look at the old version of himself, which again, I keep on going back to this idea that he, the torment that we're feeling is I am, I am no longer this guy. And and looking at this guy, I, I can't be this, this young, naive cocksure pilot anymore. Right. I am this other thing and, and, and this guilt of whether maybe he was better than his co-pilots that made him survive, or maybe it was luck. And I think this movie balances that a lot between being lucky and being really good at being a pilot. But the idea that if you're lucky and good in war, you're going to feel a tremendous amount of grief and you're going to start to carry that grief with you and on you. And it will kind of erase who you are. And that's what I think we're talking about on some level. Like, he is erased who he is because he's no longer that that innocent. And we talked about this in Platoon and things like that, but like he is affected. And sometimes being good and being lucky alienates you from the rest of the world. And, and this movie is about him finding a genuine connection again, I think on some level. Yeah, I mean, going on that, like I would say he doesn't scratch out his face because seeing his human face reminds him how miserable he is to have the face he has now. It's like he's embarrassed of that guy. He's like embarrassed of the human guy, you know? He doesn't want to see that guy's face because he doesn't like remembering who he was back then or or something. I mean, the, the one thing that we know about that picture is he's basically, out of all of those guys around in the army flying planes, he's the only one of his friends who is alive. Like his last living friend from that period, you know, is Gina. They knew each other when they were like 17 and flying on planes. And he's like, whoo, I see the wind in your skirt and I see all your pantaloons. But she, you know, says like basically every other man I have loved who is a pilot has died. What do you think of that American flyboy? He's something else, isn't he? As soon as he saw me, he asked me to marry him. So I told him of the three pilots I've married. The first died in the war. The second died in the Atlantic. The last one, he died in Asia. So you've heard something. I got the call last night. They found his remains in some remote part of Bengal. It's strange, Marco. I've been waiting to hear something for three years, but now I can't even cry. I just feel numb. Maybe I've run out of tears. Yeah, well, the good guys always die. Cheers. To a good man. And his last line there, I think, is really telling. Like, he's like, the good ones die. You know, and if right. the good ones die, what does that say about him? Or what does that say about how he thinks about himself? That he doesn't think he's one of the good ones because he survived. Yeah, I, I think that, that there's a glory right? in that. Like, yeah, like there. Yeah. Well, I, I think the longer that you live in life, you know, the more tragedy you will experience just because you're living, right? And, and that idea that he deserves to be a pig, right? He deserves to be alone. He isn't worthy of company because he can't or doesn't want to ever 
be connected again to something that will break his heart, right? That's what, that's what I'm kind of feeling is like he isolates himself because he is trying to isolate himself from, from being hurt. And, and you see yeah. that the way that he interacts with almost everyone. It's, it's distant. And the only time that you really see him connect in that clip that you just played is over loss, over mourning, over the idea that aren't we the unfortunate people that we're alive. And, and the woman that he talks with, she doesn't have that same attitude. She obviously carries the weight of grief, but at the same time is still living life. Or at least that's what I get from them, like the two of them together. Yeah. Or on that note, but just like slightly twisted off, what if he prefers being a pig to being a human? Because he doesn't seem to like humanity very much. He seems to love having the pig excuse to get himself out of the things that humans are supposed to do, like be in the military or donate to a war fund or, you know, have all these responsibilities that he just thinks are dumb. Like, I think he, he like deflects using this like pig identity not to have to deal with any of the stuff that humans have to do. I mean, I wonder if on some level he feels like being a pig is just more honest, like that it's better to walk around the world knowing that you are a pig rather than like deluding yourself into thinking that you're some great, you know, Italian war hero, you know, some great like victor of the skies. Yeah, because where's the joy in killing others? Right. Where's the joy in in taking a life? And I think that there's that weight that we talk about a lot with war films. And it's interesting because is Miyazaki, does he have that background? Does he have that connection? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, Miyazaki, whew. when it comes to Miyazaki talking about like war and the people who are involved in war and the complications of like what it's like to just be born in a country doing Doing horrible things when you're born there. That is his whole backstory. So, I mean, this is a guy who was born in Tokyo in 1941. You know, war mm. is still going on. His dad makes airplanes. His dad is the director of a company called Miyazaki Airplanes. It's like his dad and his uncle. And Miyazaki Airplanes, being in Japan in the 1940s, they're making military planes for World War II. They're specifically making like the rudder of the plane. That's their whole job. But his dad is a person who is making, you know, equipment for military planes that will bomb Pearl Harbor. You know, his family is responsible for making planes that, you know, did become like kamikaze planes. And it's tough. He feels like all sorts of conflicting emotions, you know, like, Yes, it is his dad and it is his job. And it's just what happens when you're born there. I mean, I feel like a lot of us having lived through, you know, the Trump years now have, I think, a deeper understanding of what is it like to live in a country doing things that you don't agree with? Like, what do you do? What do you start to do? Like, what if things have gotten worse? And that's what he's born into. I mean, because not only is his that his dad's job, but because it is his dad's job, he's able to grow up, you know, pretty well off at a time when a lot of kids are hungry. Um, when people start firebombing, uh, when there's American raids in Tokyo, like he's able to escape, you know, he, he's able to move outside of Tokyo and be able to grow up a little bit safer there because his family has money, because they have money, because they're making like warplanes. And I think this really weighs on him for, I mean, honestly, up until today, like he is such a strong pacifist that, you know, when he was nominated for an Oscar, you know, at the 75th Oscars here in Hollywood in 2003, he wouldn't go because he was wanted to protest the Iraq war. He did not want to mm. co- visit a country that was bombing another country. 
And in fact, that's the same dynamic that's happening here when he makes Porco Rosso is that, you know, 1990, 1991, the U.S. is starting the Gulf War. We're fighting in the Gulf. And this is a thing that really affects him. You know, countries bombing each other. And he like, I think he has always used his art and his microphone to talk about this like kind of dilemma of like what war does to people, what it does to the people who are sort of forced to get caught up into it. I mean, later on when he makes, you know, the wind rises, that's all about it. Like that's the story of like an actual Japanese uh, airplane engineer who has to work with the government and feels terrible that his like planes are used for war. So it's, it's his whole backstory. And I think he has this really personal front row view of, of, of just wrestling with all of these complications. You can't control where you're born, you know? Right. And you can't control what you love to do and you can't control like having a thing you love in a country that then makes a radical shift or can you, can you, should you like what, like, can you, I think there's not just, it's not like a knee jerk justification. It's like a lot of guilt involved. Life is a highway and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's interesting about Miyazaki and the little bit of research that I did here was that he also loves planes, these yeah. these instruments of war. Like, right? I mean, they're beautiful flying machines, but they can be like there's this true fascination with this culture and and tanks and and seeing them, you know, do what they do. So it's a really it's interesting because he's living on like both sides of the coin, right? It was like I want to make I want to make something frivolous. I want to show machines and tanks and and embrace this idea of war. And I think we see this a lot in old you know nineteen forties films from Hollywood too. There's a um, there's this you know pride in a time where we all were people were working together and you know animation's obviously uh, a giant group of team members getting together to make a vision. And that's what, you know, in many respects, um, and I'm oversimplifying it, I know, but like what, what uh, you know, what you do when you are in a, you know, a unit, an army unit, like you are together in a unit, you're fighting together, you're, you're trying to accomplish a goal. Uh, so I understand like where there's a connection and why he maybe even, you know, connects to the animation world because there are certain elements that overlap. So I think, it's interesting to love the culture, hate the product, and want to make something that celebrates both of those feelings. And I think this movie does do that. Yeah, right? And, and to do it in a way where I think it like even makes the audience question why we think certain things are good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're watching 
this movie and you're like, oh, is he a soldier? I don't know. I don't like soldier stuff. Oh, he's just a bounty hunter. Oh, okay. That's totally different. The movie even has a debate in there inside of it. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, come on. Well, what is the difference between, you know, a soldier and a bounty hunter? A lot of commotion in the streets. Sure is. Looks like our islands are in for a change of government. If so, you bounty hunters will soon be outlaws. Laws don't mean anything to a pig. (laughs) That's a good point. Don't mean much to us weapons dealers either. Here are the bullets. You sure you want the usual? We've got new armor-piercing ones that explode on contact. Hey, easy, kid. I'm just a bounty hunter. I'm not fighting a war. Come again. So, uh, what's the difference between fighting a war and bounty hunting? If you make money from war, you're scum. But if you can't make money from bounty hunting, you're an idiot. (laughs) In terms of an answer, that's not like a really reassuring one, that a bounty hunter is just somebody mercenary who makes more money out of it, and that's why it's fine. You know, but like throughout this movie, there's just all these like elbows about like trying to understand for yourself what like freedom is for you. Like what is what is your goal? Well, do do you think that there's a little bit of a dichotomy between uh, Porco and his main antagonist in this film. They they have uh, Porco's human look is similar to the antagonist look. This I think they there's a I think the reason why he's challenged or activated by this antagonist is not because he is um, truly wanting to show off his flying prowess, but I think it's because. He wants to teach his old self a lesson. I oh, say think, with a question it, it, mark. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like battling this like Texas guy, Curtis, who, by the way, in like the actual Japanese, the subtitle says from Alabama. But if you watch the dubbed version where the great Carrie Elways is voicing um, Curtis, they changed him to Texas for some reason. I don't really know why. As a Texan, I'm like, what, what do you mean? What are you trying to say about changing him to Texas? <laughs> oh, wait. Now I suddenly have a theory of why he's Texan. If this is coming out, in well, okay, ninety two. Yeah, this is coming out in ninety two, but then the He's a big version link later is coming fan. out later. I was wondering if it's a dig on George Bush because you know I like to look for those. Of course. Well, no, but like I think a, I think that when you think about America and cocksure yeah. like thing, I think Texas feels right. Like that, like to me, it's not New York; it's Texas. It's like cowboy, right? Cowboy, and I think it's not even George Bush. I think it's just straight up cowboy. Uh, and that's a you know I think that that's. A very uh, stereotypical idea of like what, you know, if you're trying to say like, what is like the the American man? You look at these shows, like whatever, Longmire and, you know, these, uh, what, what's the the big one that everyone loves Longmire? right now? Longmire? Uh, isn't a lot of one of those shows? Like Yellowstone, Longmire, oh, right. you know, all these, you know, I mean, obviously those are not all in Texas, but uh, Tulsa King. Uh, with the, the great Southerner. Oh, Tulsa King is a brand new show with Sly Stallone, the uh, the most prominent Texan. Uh, I think you're just making up like Axe body spray scents and throwing them at me. Now, Longmire is, uh, you know, a book series that now is a movie is? or TV show. Yeah, drama series. <laughs> uh, you know about Yellowstone, okay. though, right? I, I've, I've heard of it. But, but still, I mean, the point is he started it in Alabama and changed it to Texas. I okay. mean, he, he picked Alabama in the beginning. So, you know, Alabama, sort of a deep cut. Alabama, if like, sure. If you're like writing this movie in Japan. Yeah, look, I get it. I Look, and I, what I just yeah. quoted here, Longmire and Yellowstone and all that shit, it's like they're not like technically 
Texas shows, but there's no. a there's like a cowboy nature to it. I think that Texas, uh, you know, uh, kind of just answers yeah. all that sort of stuff. I mean, he doesn't I mean, look Texan to me. He doesn't he doesn't even really truly look like an American to me. You know, like he is, but he uh, he looks more like. Clark Gable, and I think they they play into that idea that he becomes a movie star. And I would say yeah. he's more like Ronald Reagan, and they're kind of making that joke more than George Bush. Yeah, that he's like an ambitious political guy who's going to be Ronald Reagan. I mean, yeah. what we know is like he's yeah, ambitious, not even political. I think just yeah. ambitious and wants the fame and fortune and doesn't really think about at what cost. Whereas I think Porco is brought down by the cost of his actions. That's fair. I mean, yeah, I think the ambition is the number one thing. Like he wants to shoot down Porco just because he wants to be famous for killing him, which I think is like such a funny, a funny game plan. Like I know how I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to kill a a pilot and that will help dot, 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 make me a movie star murdering your way to fame. I mean, yeah, I feel like this is very much supposed to be about like Ronald Reagan, but I have to say like when he, you know, is like, I'm going to go back to America and as a pilot, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to be president. The first thing I thought of watching this wasn't Ronald Reagan, but I thought of Charles Lindbergh and that Mm. whole kind of alternate history show, The Plot Against America, where Lindbergh returns to the States and like uses his fame as a pilot to become a fascist leader. Like that almost seems to fit in this even better because so much of this movie is about like F.U. fascists. I mean, right. Obviously, like Porco gets the best line in all of that. I gave him the slip. You've got to get out of Italy now. I've seen your arrest warrant deserting the Italian Air Force, entering the country illegally, being a blatantly unpatriotic pig. (laughs) This is no time to laugh, Marco. They've got it in for you. They want to confiscate your plane. Man, this movie stinks. Marco, why don't you come back to the Air Force? I've got influence now. I could work something out. Thanks for the offer, but I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. I think what you said about being, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist, probably encapsulates this whole theme of this movie, you know, uh, kind of perfectly. Um, I know what I am. I'm not pretending to be something else. And that's what I think the fascists are pushing forward. And he's like, no, no, I am a fucking pig. Like, I know what I am and... I'm, I'll live with it, you know, because they are there's an energy around it and there's there's a way that they all hold themselves. I'm proposing to a woman in a bar. I'm I you know, there's agreed to it. They're working evil sides like they they are hiding who they are and he's never hiding. He's actually very publicly out. But that doesn't mean that. As a pig. He also is pure, because I think one of the things he also wrestles with in this movie is misogyny, right? Like he is not like, he's not a fully actualized person. Maybe in one element of his life he is, but like this idea that he didn't even want a woman working on his plane, you know, that this idea that he couldn't believe it, it wasn't about like, oh, I need, I'm afraid to ask for help. It's like, I don't want help from a woman. I mean, that's a very (laughs) big part of this, you know? Yeah, exactly. That whole fight that he has when he goes to Italy about just even having lady builders work on his plane. Yeah. Uh, don't you have any male relatives? All the men are gone. They have to look elsewhere for work. This is work. Get them back. Women are great. Don't be such a pig. You see, they're very hard workers. Yeah, but we're not baking a cake here. I mean, part of what I think is going on here, though, is, you know, 
if this is 1929, the depression has just happened. So I feel like this is also Miyazaki's way of talking about the depression without talking about the depression, just like he seems to be like talking about World War II and how it's coming without talking about World War II. It, it's like, it's like he's made a movie that touches on these historical points that kids can see and feel the mood of without him totally getting into it. But since it is 1929, like we hear that all the men are gone and the men are gone because they have no work here. They have no money. And this movie is so much about money, like money being the motivator, inflation, making his money worth nothing. And I think there's this interesting idea in here, you know, where like, what are your images of being a pilot? You know, you think that like, I'm a pilot, I have a plane. To us, I think the meaning of that is like freedom. You know, like being able to fly gives you like ultimate freedom. And these pilots all seem to talk a big game, you know, like, oh, we get to do our own thing. We're up in the air. But honestly, I think even in this movie, the freedom that all of the pilots seem to represent, you know, from the bad guys and the gangs to like Porco himself, they don't actually even have it. It feels kind of like an illusion. Like Porco has to take these jobs at the beginning because he has to make money to pay off his plane. He doesn't even own it. All of the other rival gangs are just broke. They don't have the money to fix their own planes either. Like nobody has cash. And this idea of being, you know, be, like beholden to banks and beholden to your own debts and like everything coming down to money at the end of it, that makes it feel like there is no freedom. I mean, these the, the robbers can't even fly that far at, at their very beginning kidnapping because they don't have gas money, which is like so relatable right now. Yeah. I, I, I feel like... You're right. You know, it's interesting this we we idolize a lot of things in culture that we don't look at the other side of. And you were talking about like, you know, what like what's interesting about, you know, flying and you're like represents like a freedom. Well, sure, because we have movies like Top Gun, right? Top mm-hmm. Gun I believe made so many people want to become pilots because it was like a fucking ad for, you know, joining the military, but it wasn't like you're joining the military. It's like, you're going to be cool as shit. Like you're going to oh, throw yeah. on these glasses. You're going to get a cool nickname. Let's go for it. And, and we oh, are, enlistment. You know, I have the enlistment numbers are huge after Top Gun. Also the Ray-Ban numbers are huge. Also, like, do you remember the tail hook Navy scandal where like a bunch of Navy guys Went to, I think, Vegas and just yes. grossed all of the women. Yes, yes. I remember that. My God. Yeah. yeah that when I was back. researching my Tom Cruise book, like, I found, um, like, one of the Navy people, one of the officers blamed Top Gun. He was like, all these fucking yahoos joined the Navy after Top Gun thinking they'd be, like, romancing babes at the bar and wanting to live this, like, action movie lifestyle. And he's like, those are the dudes at Tailhook, man. Those are the dudes who are making us look bad. Right. But there's some of that here, too. I mean, like, all we keep hearing but, about Porco Rosso is that he's, like, such a womanizer, which we hear him, like, I don't know about it. Like, we hear him hit on a girl at the beginning. What do you think his dick is like, Amy? So he's got a pig dick or does it's, he have a human dick? Oh, because I was just going to say curly and give you the anatomical answer, but... Okay, I was going to... Like, that's he, what I thought, too. I was like, is... Yeah. I really did think, does he have a curly dick? And I'm sorry to get... Uh, Were you thinking that the whole time? When they said he was a womanizer, I did, yeah. it did cross my mind. I was like, yeah. well, he is fully realized as a pig. Does he have a curly dick? Is it part of the reason why he's a womanizer? Because people are just like, I got to check that out. I mean, isn't a pig dick like very long proportionately? Well, you know what? I feel like we're going to lose people on this conversation. Well, let's say you, everyone has got Google. Figure it out. But do you know, do you know why they're curly, by the way? Why? 
Okay. The reason that they're curly is that like in the whole genetic landscape of like female animals and male choice of mates and who they want to mate with, one of the adaptive things that women have come up with, you know, in their pig uterus uh, is like coming up with these kind of twisted wombs where it's almost like a maze, like the shining maze to get to the egg at the end because they really want to challenge the sperm. It's been like this kind of arms race. Like I don't want just like any old pig to get me pregnant. Like if you're going to get me pregnant, Mr. Pig, like you better have the coolest sperm. It better be like top notch because I'm not going to carry just anybody's baby. So like the female uteruses have gotten like really maze-like and complicated. And so the male penis of the pig has had to get more and more curly just to deal with it. It's like this total showdown of, of biological warfare. Wow. And that's the story. I mean, that's a story with like a lot of crazy penises in the animal world, you know, and that's oh, like if you get me started on like crazy animal penises, they're nuts. You know, there's like insects. Well, okay. Well, now we got to get into it and just say, look, Josh has given us some more detail too. The penis of a pig, long and rigid, has an S shape at its top half and an anti-clockwise spiral at the end. This is like basically a really complicated screw. It's about 300 to 500 millimeters long. Uh, and What's a millimeter? I'm an American. Oh, well, you know, and I can't figure that out. Uh, and then it gets <laughs> into some, it basically... It seems that, well, I don't want to get into more detail than that. There's, you can, again, get into it at home, figure out your own shit. But um, what if Jack Nicholson had a pig dick to help him get out of the maze in The Shining? Oh, boy. All right. No more of this. Uh, all right. So this movie, though, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I, no, I feel sorry. I'm just picturing him holding a pig dick like a dowsing rod, you know, like in a cartoon where it tells you where the water is. Yes. Like, what if that was the greatest way to help you when you got lost? Would you carry one in your pocket? A pig dick? Sure. Well, well, I don't know if I'm getting lost that much. If I have a phone, if I mean, yeah. What if I took away your phone, but you could have a pig dick? I don't know if I know like what north, south. I mean, I guess I'd have to. I mean, look, I'm not. The the pig dick would know. But I'm just saying, like, I don't even know what I would do with north, south, east and west. Like that, like presupposes that, like, that's going to help me in some way. What if you knew that the pig dick would take you home, but you had to just hold it really visibly and walk through, like, let's say four miles of Los Angeles. Oh, I would be fine with that. Yeah? I'd be fine with that, yeah. I mean, yeah. I would I'd hold it. I mean, it depends on what the, uh, would it be in some sort of sack? No, it'd be outward. And you'd have to wear a t-shirt that said, yes, this is a pig dick. Or ask me about my pig dick. I got to look at it. I got to see how I'm holding it. I, I'm not adverse to it. I'm not uh, freaked out about it. Uh, but again, this is a larger conversation that we have to have on our uh, our unspooled colon pig dicks, uh, which is where we unspool all the uh, stories about uh, pig dicks, you know. Um, so that is a whole different kind of unspooling here, not like a film reel. Um, oh, and oh, well, I want to say thank you unspooled. for bringing up this conversational uh, detour. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. By the way, talking about kids' movies... I did find it interesting. I think that's probably more of a Japanese thing. Like to have a, a main character in a movie smoke a cigarette was kind of shocking. That's true. There is a ton of smoking in this movie and wine yeah. drinking, red wine drinking, white wine drinking. Yeah. What do, do you think he's a vegetarian? Do you think he eats bacon? Oh boy. I think he does. Yeah. I think his appetite is the same. He doesn't, he is a pig. Uh, I mean, I guess I think pigs eat pigs, don't they? Are pigs like cannibalistic? Uh, I think pigs eat anything. Again, we don't need to get into all this pigs. I think we're no. losing track uh, of, we are. of yeah. But, but I, I am say- curious because there is that part in the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy falls into the pigsty and she's like terrified and thinks they're going to kill her. And I have always wondered if pigs eat human flesh, pig flesh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, let's go back again. To I feel we like it's not it's war. not part of this story. Again, when we get into it in our pig podcast, we will we can break it all down. Um, but but that I guess said, yeah. I mean, for as much as like Porco talks about himself as a womanizer, to your point, you know, like uh, and we even I, he well here he calls himself a womanizer when he's trying to convince um, Theo not to come with him on his mission back from Italy. I can handle that. I'm responsible for this plane, and I want to do my first job right. Think about it. I'm a known womanizer. I'd live on a deserted island in a small tent. That's great. I love camping. That's not the point. I kind of call it BS because you're right. We don't see him actually romance anybody. I mean, he he sort of hits on that one girl at the bar, right? Like he's walking by her and she's like, tell me your story of what you did. And he's like, okay, well, I will when we're alone. That's just two of us. Right. But honestly, I mean, I don't know if he's ever going to take her up on that. Like, I don't know if he's secretly pining for Gina or he's just numb to the world. But it almost feels like he's burnishing his own womanizer reputation just to make more people leave him alone. Here's what I'll say. I don't believe any of it. He is a man pig who is simply... There are stories about him because no one is connecting with him. They don't know him. right? We don't. We see him... At his most uh, unfettered, like he's, we see where he lives. He's all by himself on this beach, alone, getting drunk. And he is not, I don't believe any of it. I think that people create stories about him. He is the Red Baron. You know, he is this, this other thing. We are scared of him. He is this, he, because he has no connections and he is a pig, myths are built around him. But I don't think there I don't think there is much more there. I can say that. I mean, this is how Michael Keaton described him. You know, Michael Keaton doing the voice of him in the American. Well, dub. by the way, I started watching the American dub and I felt like it was really good. And then I'm like, I can't make the Akira mistake again. So I watched it subtitled. Oh, <laughs> and I should have so- watched it dub. But I also hear that Miyazaki thinks that the best version of all the dubs is Jean Reno, who did the French version of this. I mean, as Jean Reno, he's amazing. Of course, he's amazing. Keaton, Keaton's a little, Keaton's a little gruff. Is he Batman-ish? I don't know, but this is how he describes him. How do you not do that? I mean, you just gotta do that, I think, don't you? But he's like a Bogart-type character, kind of cynical, kind of tough guy. Or maybe I'm dead and life as a pig is the same thing as hell. <laughs> 
When I watched it, I thought, this is so kind of fun and cool. I'd be careful if you plan on making a deal. It's just a little offbeat from what I think we're used to. What did you think? I mean, did you have an issue with the subtitling? Like no, watching I didn't. visuals and No, I mean like I got taken to task by some people like that I was an idiot for listening to the dub of Akira. Um but uh at the same time, you know, I, I made that choice. And then I also really loved what I was seeing. I, I remember watching the dub of Ponyo and going, Oh, well, these are actors that I know giving like a really good performance. And I was really enjoying Porco with the Michael Keaton. I was like, you know what? Let me just watch it the other way. I don't want to fall victim to this twice. Um, but yeah, I didn't like, there was something about Michael Keaton that felt a little bit too, it didn't match for me totally. I did yeah, find the, neither. you know, I found the, uh, I found the Japanese performance to be a little bit more uh, fitting. Yeah. I felt like the Japanese performance had a bit more gravitas or something. There's something kind of watery diet Pepsi to me in Michael Keaton's voice in this. And I say this loving Michael Keaton, but oh, you I, can't I, not I didn't love feel him. like yeah. he was, I didn't feel like he was totally right for this. Carrie always is Curtis. Funny. Yeah. I was into that, but yeah, I don't know that. I think there needed to be more weight in Michael Keaton's voice. I, I definitely buy that. I think that there, um, and it's interesting. I think that like, you know, I always am wondering who's directing these things and is it just like, oh, Michael Keaton's a great voice for this, but it's not like, not, they're not auditioning. They can't really like finesse it. it. Like there's a different version there. I like him as this character, like in the concept of him doing this, brilliant. The execution, not as great in my opinion. And it's funny that Carrie Elways is playing the American, uh, you know, uh, yeah, anyway. It, when it, he's like uh, British? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I wonder I wonder who would do a good job with a Porco voice. I mean... Well, Jean Reno is a great choice. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's... But I do think Michael Keaton's a good one. It, I, but I do believe, you know, there's something about, or at least the way that animation is done now, where the voice informs some of the drawing um, at certain stages and the characters take on a life of their own. So I wonder if like uh, Michael Keaton did get a chance to do that and they were drawing to him, if it would have, it would pop a little bit more, but you're right. Like I think his performance yeah. overall was, you know, but I I've seen him do this character. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I saw a documentary about how they did the voices and the main thing they talk about is just the difficulty in translating Japanese to English and then having to rewrite lines that fit what the mouth said. Like they right. just kept talking a lot about the beats, but they didn't seem to talk a lot about the characterization, except for the woman who played Gina, who talked a lot about what she thought Gina was like. I think that people get too obsessed over lip flap in animation. Yeah. I think, if you know, like how closely are we watching these lips? You know, to me, I'm just think uh, we can we can fudge it a little bit. Right. I'm like, that was yeah, fudge it a little bit. Yeah, fudge a little Put some fudge in its mouth. It's fine. <laughs> I did see when I was like searching for more information on it that people have turned like uh, Porco Rosso's Island into ASMR videos where you can like put on an image of his island oh, and just hear a little bit of like the sea lapping if you want to zone out and meditate for an hour. It's very repetitive, but it sounds briefly like this. Ooh, I like that. It's mellow, right? Very mellow. By the way, I did go on kind of a strange tangent about flying pigs. Okay. Because I, I feel like 
and I know I made my joke earlier at the show, at the show, my joke, like it was a hilarious thing to say. My reference to idioms and the idiom, like pigs have wings, which is such a common phrase here, like in the English language. I think that phrase shows up in the English language sometime around the 1500s, mm-hmm. this idea of, of pigs having wings. And I feel like if a, an American or an English speaking artist had made this, they would make it knowing that that's like an idiom here, like. That the idea of like when a pig flies, anything is like crazy. Nothing is possible. It's a thing that will never happen. But I feel like Miyazaki makes this film kind of without really consciously having this history of it as an American idiom. Right. It, yes. It's like, like when it's, pigs fly, he wasn't thinking, oh, that's yeah. great. But I will say that some of the advertising definitely caught on to that because, you know, like some of the taglines for the film. Uh, and these are the Japanese taglines. A pig who doesn't fly is just an ordinary pig. Which yes. kind of I feel like is a little bit of a to that, <laughs> um, but I also love this tagline, which is a a, a decidedly Japanese tagline, in my opinion. Uh, and I, I apologize if this is coming across uh, from a too much of an American point of view, but this is what it means to be cool. <laughs> like that to me is like a perfect uh, well, Japanese tagline. <laughs> that just doesn't seem like what the movie's about at all (laughs) no it seems to me like and but the poster and everything again this movie does have a chance to glorify that thing it's about a hero who flies a cool plane he is helped by a really smart girl but it's like if you can but i think kids can look at it and go here's a great guy he was shot down he comes back it follows the it follows the the rules of very classic storytelling right yeah and but i think what we're talking about is this much more layered, nuanced plot underneath the surface. And I think it's the reason why Miyazaki thinks this movie is not going to work. Like, people don't want to see this. But then it becomes this giant hit. You know, it it becomes this movie that people really connect to. And I think, going back to what we originally started out talking about, this idea that when an adult can walk away from a movie that may be viewed as a children's movie, feeling that there is a deeper connection to it, you're going to get this audience to come with you. Like this is, you know, this not only cements Miyazaki as a, um, uh, a great animator, but as a, the kind of just like a hit maker, whatever yeah. he does, we're going to get a hit. I mean, cause honestly he'd already done Totoro before this and Totoro had not been such a big right. hit. Like this is one of the movies that sustains his career so that people go back and then they discover his earlier movies like Kiki's and Totoro. You know, this really grounds him. And it's interesting, like the comic book, you know, this is based on like a really short 15 page comic book that he did ahead of time. The comic book gets even a little bit more into kind of the murky stuff he's talking about. Like he, Mm -hmm. there's a little scene in there where, where the character talks about how bad he feels that he really prefers German machine guns when he knows that they're German and like, oh, it sucks, but they are the best machine guns. I do really like them. And he gets into, you know, some of the digs on America that I think are totally fair. He says like, what he loves about the kind of curvy, strange, loony design on this uh, of Porco's plane, which is inspired by real planes, um, that it is like Italian craftsmanship. It's got like this style and it's not what he calls, quote unquote, American rationalism, as in the planes that he thinks came out of America in this time uh, favored, you know, just like mechanics over beauty. I think he loves the beauty of it, which is why he has like planes, planes that are painted like polka dots and like rainbow colors and like yeah. sherbet. And they're, they're so beautiful, the planes that he uses in this movie. I mean, it's weirdly cheerful. That's one of the things I think just pops out about it, like straight away. 
that this is a movie about all these serious ideas, but it's also just like bright and colorful. Like his pitch when he wanted to do this movie first is just a short thing for Japan Airlines was not that he was making a movie for kids. He said his target audience was tired businessmen on long flights. And so he wanted to turn their boring <laughs> flight into a dream. You know, he wanted to make a film. These are the parameters that he set up for himself. He wanted to make a film that was cheerful, but not rowdy, dynamic, but not destructive, romantic without lust, set in a world that is incredibly bright and beautiful. And he just makes you like accept this tone straight away. I mean, the movie starts, there's a kidnapping. We've seen this Liam Neeson movie like 90 times. But what you don't see is the kids just being like, oh, this is cute. This is fun. We're taking over the plane. And the kidnappers themselves seeming kind of adorable. Take all of the kids. Are you seaplane pirates? That's right. So we're your hostages? That's right, too. Smells like you never bathed. You're shot. How cute. Could use some mud. Hey, hey. Come on, kids. We're in a hurry. Boss, do we have to take all 15 of them? Yeah, it's not nice to separate them from their friends. I love, I mean, I love the kidnappers. One of them r- reminded me of Bluto from Popeye. Like, they, they had this, like, <laughs> I mean, the fact that they're kidnapping kids and you're kind of okay with it and the kids are swimming, like, that that opening sequence really is a different film, but it captures the fun of the movie, and I think it has a different weight. But I do think this is something that he wrestles with because I want to just go back briefly to what you said about it being based on a comic book. The comic book really was much more of a fun story. It was... You know, um, back in 84, it's about a a military officer who is a pig who leaves command. He builds a tank and he's going out there for fun and glory. He kidnaps a young woman uh, and tries to seduce her. Um, And, you know, and he was like, oh, well, you know, should they fall in love? But then he was like, oh, I don't know. You know, uh, you know, he was like, like it was a weirder story. It was a much more, I think, um, you know, like fortune and glory kind of uh, like, I think more of an Indiana Jones story than it was this story about what I think you succinctly said, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist, Uh, which is interesting. I wonder if like wrestling with it more and letting those 10 years, I kind of percolate, like he created something and he's like, I want to do something a little bit deeper than that. Yeah. And he's got all these little asides in the original comic that make you see how much he sees this as an anti-war, anti-fascist movie. Like, you know, there's that little sort of cross sign on the back of Porco's plane. And he does just right in the margins. Like, he draws that cross, and then he draws the fascist cross. And he's like, this is not the same cross. I want to be very clear these are different crosses. And he even adds, like, I don't even like drawing this fascist cross. I hate Mm. hate even making this cross. And so he's, like, building in this whole world to kind of— talk about this political stance that he really wants to make with this film, which to me is something that I find like interesting just as a challenge. Like, can you make a film about like a fighter in a plane and the military that is not like a pro-military film, right? It's like really hard to do that. Like, can you make a film where any hero goes up in sort of a military plane or there's a military vibe and it doesn't wind up feeling like the military is great? And I think that is his challenge here that he really tries to do. Yeah, I, I do think it's hard. I think that's a hard thing to do uh, because whenever your hero looks really good, uh, you know, not only does Porco look great flying the plane, but he looks great as a character, as a pig. Like you want to be the pig. It's hard. I think it's hard to balance these ideas because 
inevitably you are showing right. you are you are glorifying something. I think it's impossible not to glorify it. Right. right? But, but like but I don't know if that's bad. I just but it's just that's it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like when we were talking about Akira, you know, we mentioned how the very first feature length Japanese animated film was all about cute animals becoming suicide parachute jumpers. Mm -hmm. And it's, and and I mean, that would have been like a film that opened right when he was a baby, you know, that he would definitely be aware of as somebody who'd worked in like animation from the time he was a kid. And it feels incredibly serious to him to make a film about this that doesn't encourage people to sign up like they did at Top Gun. Right. You know, because honestly, even later on, like the, there was a moment where the, um, the Japanese government was considering amending the constitution so that they would kickstart having an army again. And Miyazaki was one of the really outspoken critics of that. Like, absolutely not. Do not change the constitution. This country does not need that military force back. We don't need that kind of like weaponized nationalism. Like he is passionately against making anything that could be interpreted as a pro-war film. So you would say this is not a pro-war film. Oh, yeah, for sure. But uh, but I do feel like it's also a movie that doesn't lie and say a good guy can prevent a war, that war doesn't have to happen. Like it kind of put, it puts a human life or a pig life into scale. Like Porco can't stop what's coming. He can just like hide out from it, you know, like. Yeah, and I, I respect that because that feels like a difficult thing to say. I mean, Miyazaki said while he was making this film, he had a realization about what is it like to be alive during complicated times. And what he said is, you know, no matter how messy things get, we have no choice but to go on living. And that is the setup for Porco. Here he loves this character who's alive when a war's about to start. And what do you do? Well, he's going to have to live through it. Right. And do you think that um, going back to the light, like, what do you think goes on for Porco after this? Do you think that he goes back into the world or, you know, because obviously he's hiding, but we don't really know, right? We don't really know exactly... (laughs) where he moves from, like what he moves to. I mean, I think he eventually goes back and, you know, romances Gina. You know, I really do think so. I mean, and and here's why, because there is that epilogue at the end where Theo's telling us everything that happens and a little cryptic, you know, she doesn't quite say. She says she leaves that up, up for us to find out later. Through the years, there've been a few wars and a good deal of turmoil, but my friendship with Gina has remained strong. I am now president of the Piccolo Company, and we're busy designing all sorts of radical new planes, but I take time out every summer to visit the Hotel Adriano. The old pirate gangs still hang out at Gina's bar. But around when she's saying exactly what she's saying there about like her and Gina becoming friends, you know, she does that pan over the hotel. And if you look very closely at the very end of this island hotel, you see Porco's red plane parked all by itself at like a secret little ramp that would lead up to her garden. And so mm. she kind of lets you know that that's where he is. Do you think that that's a perfect relationship? Because in a way, I guess what I'm thinking is she keeps on losing pilots in her life, the men that she loves. And it feels to me like he may not be a pilot anymore. He's done flying. Like this was his last hurrah. I wonder. I mean, I wonder if he's not a pig anymore. Well, I definitely wondered about that too. Like did this break his... You know, it would have been interesting to know, like, if he stopped flying, if he became, if he became a human again. I think, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no allusion to that. Uh, Maybe it's just your own idea, but I do think that, I do think that there's a, there's something there that you could make that argument that like, you, you kind of long for that, 
that one image where you see there's a moment right there's a moment in the movie where the young girl is with him she looks at him by the fire and sees his real face right and in that moment is she seeing him for who he actually is in, in this moment of like he is being open he is being he's not have he doesn't have his walls up there yeah. is something to be said for like there is no curse. He has made himself a pig because he doesn't know how to interact with the world without being a pig. Like putting these walls up. The pig is a wall to keep people away. And in that moment, that drops, you know, because no one's around. Or he yeah. thinks no one's around. Yeah, as in, it's not so important that he looks in the mirror and he sees a pig. It's important that when other people look at him, they see a pig. Right. It's like warning other people how he thinks of himself on the inside. Well, I think part of it is like it keeps people away. Like if you make yourself ugly, you keep people away. Right. Yeah. Uh, on some level, like he he's not not like not that ugly people don't have friends. It, but like if you view yourself as ugly, then you view yourself as somebody that doesn't deserve love or attention or anything like that. Yeah. So I think I think there's an element of that, too. Or you could say he's reflecting back to humanity what he thinks of them. Mm. You know, because Miyazaki himself, like, he talks a lot about his own sort of self-righteousness and anger. Like, and maybe Miyazaki is being really critical to himself, you know, but he says that, you know, he's a person who really believes, like, that this is what's right and this is what's not right. And he kind of walks through the world and that he has this tendency to being a very angry man. But that the way that he tries to calm his anger is by reminding himself that human beings are foolish. And it's like thinking of them as foolish people, but not enemies is what I think helps him diffuse. Yeah. And so I I wonder if like the pigness is making fun of humanity, kind of like saying, this is all very silly. You're aware this is all very silly, what you think and what you're doing and why you're doing it, chasing paper money, all of it, you know, war, nobility, fascism, like loyalty to your country. It's all, it's all, it's all a little bit silly. And I do wonder if he puts it down at the end when like Curtis looks at him and it says like, let me see your face. Like what is going on with your face? And Curtis seems to see him as the human too. Yeah, you're right. So maybe it's the way that we view ourselves is the way that we carry ourselves to the outside world. Yeah. Because I would say that Porco does not like himself. Right? Yeah. No, he definitely doesn't. But he also, I think he also believes... I think he still carries the guilt of it should have been me. Like, this is what I'm like, I, it should have been me. So he's punishing himself instead of, uh, instead of being thankful. I think that grief and trauma can paint you in a way where you can make your life so unlivable that it's almost as if you're dead. And part of that journey of the people that I know and I've seen is how do you carry grief in a way where you still carry on with your life? You hold the people that you love that have passed in high regard, but also understand that no one would want you to be sacrificing your own life. Like you, you're here for a limited amount of time, at least enjoy it. You did get out like, and I think that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely here. Yeah, they, they, they're, 
there's that whole debate in the middle of the film, you know, like, is Porco alive or is Porco dead? And when he sees the headlines himself, he's like, I don't even know. It, it makes me feel like he's wrestling with how alive he even wants to be. It, and, there, and there's such a, I love that beautiful sequence when he's talking about that flashback to the war and the fight where all of his friends died. And he talks about like flying up into those kind of milky clouds. And then he sees that asteroid belt almost of like yeah. his fellow dead pilots, like flying forever in eternity, which is a kind of a beautiful image, at least in the afterlife, they're doing what they love, but it's also haunting and they're in lockstep and nobody's like diving or swirling or having fun. They're just kind of going forth really uniformly. But that music in that scene, you know, as he's like calling out to his friend that he lost, like Bellini, that music is so gorgeous. Berlini, I thought you were dead. Come back here. Where do you think you're going? This whole soundtrack, this whole score is just beautiful. But I love that shot in particular and that and the, the way the music goes with it. Absolutely. You know, by the way, did you know that this film was actually initially rejected for being uh, distributed in the United Kingdom, like right when they first tried to offer it around? Because in this like post-Akira world, this company was like, this is not anime. Real anime has sex and violence. And if this doesn't have enough sex and violence to be anime. So no, thank you. We're not interested. Nobody cares. Whoa, really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's wild. Um, <laughs> they wasn't extreme enough, uh, but I can't imagine, uh, that most people felt that way. I mean, I imagine that this movie, you know, connects, although it is interesting that it is not, a, I mean, again, I am no Miyazaki expert, but it is not one of the films that I have heard of in even, I would say the top five. It was interesting that it was in our poll after we eliminated the, the two, most recognizable ones or the the two biggest ones uh, that this one popped up. Um, I was really fascinated by that. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if part of why Porco Rosso is, I think, getting its due more and more is because when he went on and made like The Wind Rises in 2014, I think people really, really had to understand how much this moment in time and aviation in general like meant to him. You know, like if you love Miyazaki and you want to understand him, this is not his autobiography, but it is the self-portrait of the things that he obsesses over and frets over and worries and like, you know, chews over and tries to do right. And I think it's just, I think, I mean, I love all his films. This is not a diss in any of his films, but it is easy to have like a, a cute cat and a little girl running right. around and make something adorable. Like those are adorable. They're very cute and popular and wonderful to watch for a reason. But I'm glad we did this one because I think it's it's a deeper window into his soul. I agree. I think it's I always think it's a very interesting uh, way to look at a filmmaker when they get to make a film that is something a little bit closer to their heart. And a lot of the times this idea I talk about this on uh, how did this get made all the time that a passion project sometimes is a failure because you're so excited to finally make it. And you've been told so no so many times that you forget like why your other films have been good and the collaborations have been good or maybe the the idea was faulty or you don't ever tweak it in a certain way. But this is a different version of that. This is a very well-executed film that also is, it feels like a passion project. It feels like an intentional detour that in his mind 
he took his shot like that uh, podcast blank check is so I love that podcast but the idea like well I have a blank check now I can go and make the thing I want to make and this is kind of it feels like this is the thing that he wanted to make and he wasn't sure it was going to work and the fact that it actually did work and even the way he went about it like well I'll make it as an airplane thing I'll you know I'll make it as a comic book I'll make it as an airplane you know it's like and it just grew and grew and grew it, it's a very interesting evolution of this idea um that he was able to make something at the, not the height, but at a moment where I guess no one was going to question him. And then it worked. And then I think the gates are open from there on forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely how how I would put it. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, you know, I went on a whole detour, by the way, about pigs and flying that I just, I have to just share with you. Um, did you know? that the very first Englishman to fly an airplane, um, a man with a very complicated name, Lieutenant Colonel John Theodore Cuthbert Moore Brabazon, uh, mm-hmm. also known as the Lord Brabazon of Terra. Uh, not only was he the first Englishman to fly an airplane, um, in 1909, he was the first person to put a pig in air. He flew a pig in an airplane in a little basket, and the basket had a sign on it saying, this is the first pig to fly, as a way mm-hmm. of saying, I am now a pilot. We are doing the impossible. The aviation moment is here. Wow. All right. Isn't that cool? I, I love mean, that. And I would be remiss if I didn't just like talk about like every pig who's ever flown, which is a lot. Okay. I won't do Wait, all of there's that. a lot of pigs that have flown. <laughs> I did. I will get again, I mean, because I guess we're talking about this idea. Like people yeah. just want to do that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I mean, I'm they in. deliberately just want to prove it. They want to prove that this is the weird thing that you can do. I mean, of course there are people doing it, you know, for their own, you know, mental health reasons. Megan Peabody is packing for a quick getaway vacation and she's not traveling alone. The 28-year-old is heading to Miami with her pet potbelly pig named Hamlet. The ticket agents at American Airlines sure are surprised as they look over Megan's documentation, certifying Hamlet as an emotional support animal. The kids in the hall, top 10 famous flying pig. The the pig who flies to like entertain you when you're in line? Yes, yes. Hey everybody, look! It's the flying pig! Oink, oink! And it's been so long since we did a Simpsons, but the Simpsons have maybe my favorite flying pig. You remember the episode where Lisa is a vegetarian and Homer happens to be like barbecuing a pig with a pig on his mouth and she takes the barbecue cart and she like runs away with it and tries to free it and it winds up blasting into this into the space. Do you remember this? No, I don't. Ah, oh, I'm jolting your memory. Here you go. All right. It's just a little airborne. It's still good. It's still good. It's good. I know. You know, Smithers, I think I'll donate a million dollars to the local orphanage. When pigs fly. Will you be donating that million dollars now, sir? No, I'd still prefer not. By the way, as weird as like pigs have wings, you know, which is the way they phrase it, and like Alice in Wonderland, when pigs fly, blah, 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 as weird as that is as a maxim, the Russians on this one have us beat. Because their version of this phrase is, when the crayfish will whistle on the mountain. Oh, I like that. I mean, that, I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> when the crayfish whistle, when the crawdads sing and the crayfish whistle, on you know you got to- On the mountain. On the mountain. I know, I was, I was Americanizing <laughs> it. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and, what, and so I guess what, how did critics view it? Critics, but didn't really review it very much. It didn't make a ton of a splash. And the ones who did, 
liked it. Like I could not find a negative review for this movie, but I do think it says something that when, um, that when Miyazaki tried to talk about this same conversation again, about like people who get involved in war and can you be a non-political person at a time where the world is like going to hell or is it even okay to be a non-political person? Uh, when he tries to get into all of this in 2014 with The Wind Rises and his like his animated movie about Jiro Horikoshi, you know, the, the Japanese engineer, he was criticized from all flanks, you know, like it, it, he has not been able to talk about this without like taking on a ton of criticism in the 2000s that he did not get when this movie came out in the 90s. Like he was criticized on really every direction for making a movie that like was, you know, tender and respected the artistry of a person who was making planes that did wind up killing a bunch of people. He really couldn't win having this conversation anymore. Like you know, he was criticized by... um not showing enough of the actual atrocities that the Japanese did on the war on one side. And he was criticized by conservative Japanese people as making a film that they considered to be anti-patriotic. And he was also criticized by the medical establishment for having his characters continue to be smoking. So it has become a little harder to talk about the complexity as he sees it. And the fact that even in here, his good guys do bad things and his like, his bad guys are sort of lovable to children and like, he doesn't seem like he thinks there is clear moral villains and victims in the world. And it's difficult to talk about it. It's really difficult to try to put some shade into his animation. Um, did they talk about Pig Dixon there? Uh, no, he didn't. But he, uh, if he does do a sequel, I, I'm sure that you can ask him. All right, great. I think that that's good. Uh, well, Amy, you know what? This, this flight, this top gun, sorry, this flying cool pig has made me you know feel the need the need for to pig do <laughs> <laughs> no amy i you, i was gonna say i have the need to revisit top gun one in honor of top gun maverick coming out not even a sequel but we thought this would be fun to take a break uh, from our our month of animation to uh, kind of honor uh, a classic, a classic that we talked about here that we've actually kind of said uh, is responsible for a lot of uh, bad things in in the general uh, sense that uh, got people involved in a lifestyle that they didn't quite fully understand, but. I do think there's a lot of energy going on about uh, Top Gun Maverick. It seems like the biggest movie of the summer, Doctor Strange, Top Gun 2, and Thor are like the three big blockbusters that we have coming up. And what's interesting about this one is, while it is a sequel, again, it's it's something that does feel different. And Top Gun, I think, feels different. It's not... It's not about superheroes. It's not a giant franchise. And I would argue that most people seeing Top Gun Maverick are going to be unfamiliar with the first film. Do you I think, think it's so? geared. I think it's going to be geared. I think it's geared to a new audience. It has to be on wow. some level, right? Don't you think? Because to, it's, to me, it looks like, yes, it's called Top Gun Maverick, but it doesn't feel like it's called Top Gun 2. Like it, it, it feels like it is trying to make a new thing. We got the new, young, hunky people in it. We got Lady Gaga. It, this is not about like a bunch of old guys getting up in planes. So I do think that there is, I mean. You mean it's not like what, Space Cowboys? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mean, okay, I will say this. You know, maybe the maybe the illusion is it's like the color of money, 
when Cruz mm, did the right, color yes. of money after he did Top Gun, which I would not have known was a sequel to The Hustler. That's what I, I kind of think it is. Yes. Yeah. I think it's like, because yeah. this movie came out in 86. Top Gun came out in 1986. Um, and now people may know it, but I think that we live in a culture where people don't know anything. It's like, I always remember when people said, oh, Eddie Murphy used to do like adult movies. And it's like, oh yeah, that's the world that we live in. Like, it's only what you've just seen that person do. Or, oh, yeah. you know, um, this is My an best 86. Was she was in a writing room where none of the younger people in the writing room knew that Jared Leto used to be Jordan Catalano. Wow. There you go. That made See? me want to die. Uh, so this is what we're talking about. We're going to go back, uh, get ready for Top Gun Maverick by watching Top Gun. You can get Top Gun uh, wherever you stream your films. And I'm sure on a discount because at this point they want to probably get people uh, watching both back to back, maybe out of order. Uh, but uh, take a listen to the trailer. send you up against the best. Yes, sir. You two characters are going to Top Gun. I feel the need. The need for speed. For five weeks, you're going to fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You guys really are cowboys. I don't like you because you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. The wild card flies by the seat of his pants. Yeah, I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. Gentlemen, this school is about combat. There are no points for second place. You figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? No, I think I can figure that one out on my own. Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis. Top Gun. All right, Amy, are you ready to uh, are you ready to salute uh, a different side of a fighter pilot's journey? Am I ever? Are you kidding me? Do you know how much I have waited to do a Tom Cruise movie on this show? Oh my gosh, it's our first Tom Cruise. This is a real first Miyazaki, first Tom Cruise, and we are what four years into this show. Oh my god, the world so of many cinema. firsts, so huge. <laughs> I like this comparison though uh, of Porco and Top Gun back to back. It'll be interesting to watch, and I'm actually very excited to watch Top Gun again. I haven't watched it in years. Oh, I have so many opinions on Top Gun. It is on. I can't wait. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled.
Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.